Learn how to take your caring and giving farther with the Caring and Funding Podcast powered by Cap America. Cap America, America's leader in cross-border philanthropy, helps corporations, foundations, wealth advisors, and individuals who wish to give internationally and with enhanced due diligence in the United States. Through its industry-leading grant management program and philanthropic advisory services, Cap America helps donors amplify their impact and ensure their gifts are made in a safe and effective manner. This caring and funding podcast is dedicated to these donors and the charities they support. Our guests are leaders in their field who join us to share tips for success and stories that inspire. Our host is Ted Hart, the CEO of Cap America. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at capamerica.org, on iTunes, and now just say, Alexa, play CAF America on TuneIn. Now, welcome the host of Cap America's Caring and Funding Podcast, Ted Hart. My name is Ted Hart, and I have the privilege of serving as President and CEO of Cap America and Cap Canada. In December of 2022, the Office of Finance, Asset, and Control, OFAC, announced new general licenses that allow for expanded humanitarian relief work in many high-risk jurisdictions. During today's conversation, we'll share what grant makers need to know about these changes and how they will affect grants being made to affected countries. We're going to be joined today by Paul Carroll, the Director of Charity and Security Network. The Charity and Security Network is a resource and advocacy center for nonprofit organizations to promote and protect their ability to carry out effective programs that support peace and humanitarian rights, aid civilians in areas of disaster and armed conflict, and build democratic governance. Thanks for joining us, Paul, today. We appreciate you taking the time to share your expertise on this timely issue. Thank you, Ted. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Let's jump right into what can be a complex and confusing topic for many donors wanting to give internationally. But let's start by making sure that everyone knows exactly what is an OFAC license and how do they work and what types of activities do they cover or they don't cover. Of course, yes. This is this is a fundamental thing that is, on the one hand, it's, it's very straightforward. On the other hand, it's it's very bureaucratic and can be arcane. So let's start with OFAC. OFAC is the Office of Foreign Assets Control. This is a part of the U.S. Treasury Department. I think most people think of the Treasury Department as you know managing the country's finances, and it, and it does, but it also manages and monitors and is the regulatory agency over how the United States and its citizens interact with foreign countries and foreign financial institutions. So when the United States applies sanctions to a country, to an armed group, to individuals, the Treasury Department is sort of in the driver's seat because a lot of most of those sanctions are really designed to limit and restrict resources, read money and, and material to the groups that are under sanctions. The exception is that the United States has always attempted to protect basic, what they call life-saving humanitarian aid. This is food, medicine, things where, let's say, refugees or victims of conflict or disaster basically are not party to any criminal activity. They're not party to a conflict. They're simply people trying to live their lives. So what OFAC, what the Office of Foreign Assets Control is authorized to do 
is issue licenses that think like a hunting license or a fishing license. If you're a humanitarian organization, you're trying to deliver food or medicine, the Treasury Department grants you a license and you are allowed to, you are legally permitted to enter the country to deliver aid and so on. And so um, it's important also, I think, for your listeners to understand there are two types of licenses that OFAC is used. One is called a specific license, and that is a very narrow uh, permission slip, if you will, to operate in a very particular area, um, maybe engage with very particular groups or populations. And so organizations have to apply for a specific license very narrowly. A general license is something that is what the Treasury Department calls self-activating. You don't have to apply for it. It exists and it describes the, the sort of breadth of activities that are allowed. And so these licenses are really the, the lifeblood of NGOs, non-governmental organizations, nonprofits that seek to operate in other countries to provide aid and comfort to populations. Our listeners may know that on December 20th, 2022, OFAC announced changes to their existing authorizations and exceptions for humanitarian activities in the form of new and updated general licenses, those permission slips, as you were, as you were just mentioning, that were meant to ease the delivery of humanitarian aid across many regions currently under sanctions programs. These general licenses will be critical components for ensuring that philanthropists and grant makers in the United States can give with confidence to high-risk countries facing disaster, crisis, and war. Can you help our listeners understand just how monumental these changes are, how important they are? Uh, properly managed, these really will open new pathways for grant making by removing important obstacles. Yes, thank you. Yes, the, the December 20th issuance of, of the general license by the Treasury Department was a watershed event. And, and I think your listeners and probably most of the general public can, can be forgiven if, if they didn't notice. Um, first of all, it was, it was announced right before the sort of holiday break, and often it's, it gets buried in the news. But frankly, um, you know, we, we operate in a, a, a particular aspect of, of NGO activity and so on. I, I want to take a, a quick step back because I think it's very important to understand the context uh, under which these general licenses, and they, they were, I think monumental is, is not a superlative. It, it was a watershed event, um, really decades in the making. I, I think there's two important things to understand that happened in the recent past that helped facilitate these broad general licenses, and I'll, I'll get to, to that in a minute, what they actually include. The first was when the Biden administration came into to power, one of the first things they basically rhetorically committed to was making human rights and humanitarian protections a centerpiece of U.S. foreign policy. And they had an opportunity to demonstrate this right away because the outgoing Trump administration had listed uh, a Yemeni group, um, Ansar Allah, also known as the Houthis, as a foreign terrorist organization or an FTO. Now, this is important because when the United States lists an organization as a, as a terrorist organization, it basically cuts off all type of contact, aid, and so on. In doing so, to the, in the Yemeni context, um, it basically overnight suspended large humanitarian programs. The Biden administration reversed that. So from a, I don't even want to say political, from a policy perspective, 
it was a notable change and a recognition that humanitarian aid really needed to continue. Um, regardless of how you view the Yemeni conflict, it was a recognition of the need to facilitate NGO programming. The next thing that happened later that year, 2021, was the, the really unfortunate aftermath of the withdrawal of the United States from Afghanistan. If you remember, the United States withdrew its forces late in the summer. By October, um, the Taliban had essentially recaptured the country as well as its political institutions. This is notable because, um, of course, the United States had been present in the country for some 20 years, and now there was a humanitarian crisis. The, the, basically, the vast population of Afghanistan was facing famine, uh, shortage of medicine, and so on. The United States rapidly, over the course of about two months, broadened the general licenses that were in force for Afghanistan. It recognized, um, your listeners may remember Colin Powell, when he was Secretary of State, had this rule, you know, if you break it, you bought it. And, and that may seem flip, but you know, Afghanistan was, was a situation that we were obviously a part of, of creating. And so we had a responsibility to make sure it wasn't a catastrophic result. So the Treasury Department throughout October, November, December of 2021 issued greatly expanded licenses to allow international NGOs, U.S.-based NGOs to, to really ramp up their activities in Afghanistan. This was a prelude to what happened in 2022 and where we are today, where over the course of 2022, and this was a very quiet, I'll call it a lobbying um, activity, the United States and Ireland in the, in the United Nations sought and achieved a UN Security Council resolution that basically codified humanitarian exceptions in UN Security Council resolution. Between the U.S. commitment to humanitarian aid, the, um, the, the reality of the Afghanistan situation and the, the expansion of licenses there, and then the United Nations basically um, leading by example by expanding their humanitarian allowances. Within two weeks, the United States Treasury Department and OFAC issued these general licenses that greatly broadened the types of activities that, that nonprofits are allowed. Now, I'll, I'll close by saying, um, so what do these new licenses allow? Why are they so different and new? It, it is, they go far beyond basic life-saving need. They, you know, the, the food, clothing, medicine is just the starting point. These new general licenses that were issued allow environmental projects, development projects, uh, economic projects, and what our community is very excited about is sort of democratic institution building, things that might be called peace building. And this is notable because um, it recognizes that what populations need, what countries need in the aftermath of conflict is far more than just basic life support. It, it, it's, it's helping to build a future. And so they're barely a month old. Uh, I think there's a lot of questions and things to, to still be understood, but essentially it is a sweeping expansion of the types of activities that are allowed by, by U.S. NGOs and, and individuals in these, in these countries. Paul, we can't thank you enough, and, and CAF America does uh, join the um, Charity and Security Network in really praising 
uh, OFAC in expanding uh, these these licenses because they they are uh, so important to helping populations that are in great need. Uh, as you know, CAF America is counted on for full regulatory compliance. Therefore, while this all sounds extremely positive, and, and it is, and it's monumental and a big step forward, we want our listeners to understand where pitfalls still exist. What should grant makers focus on to remain fully compliant while taking maximum benefit of these new licenses? Now, it's a, it's a great point, Ted, and I, I think I, w- I really want to leave your listeners and your audience with the, with the broad feeling, because it's not just a feeling, it's, it's actual policy. There is, there is far more sweeping allowances for the types of activities. There is a um, institutional a Treasury Department, Biden administration commitment to this. However, as you mentioned, there are still things that donors need to be very aware of. Um, just like with the, you know, the license analogy, if you think of, oh, I have a driver's license. Well, that's great, but it doesn't mean you can drive 100 miles an hour. There are, there are limits. There are laws. With respect to licenses and, and operating in sanctioned environments, the fundamental uh, risk, I would say, is uh, there are two I would point out. Um, the first is the underlying law that sanctions are based on. Um, the, the shorthand for this is called you know, the material support statutes. And the reason that so many NGOs and donors and so on are, you know, I think, rightly concerned, although sometimes overly timid, is that the material support law is a criminal statute. There, there is a scenario uh, under which it, it, one could imagine that if an organization um, violates its license or does something under a sanctioned regime that is not allowed, that they could be held criminally liable. And it's a very um, daunting prospect. This has never happened actually with respect to NGOs, um, but it is a, it creates a chilling effect. And so I guess I would say the most important thing for donors to understand is, is sort of educate themselves about uh, some of these nuances. Um, you know, the, the underlying statute that authorizes sanctions, but also the Treasury Department's role in issuing licenses. I think the more practical challenge and one where CAF America is incredibly valuable and useful for donors um, in supplying guidance and information is that the financial world, financial institutions, banks, um, basically the, you know, the lubricant in any NGO activity are extremely risk averse. And even when you sort of help explain to them that, these, these activities are allowed. My organization is licensed. Um, we do due diligence. We're, we're professionals. We've operated in these situations for years and years. The banks will see, you know, an area or a country and they're like, I'm sorry, you want to transfer money to Syria? You know, no thanks. It, it, it's not that they're not allowed. Um, they, it's a private sector entity and their fundamental risk aversion often leads to what is called de-risking, meaning they don't even want to consider assessing the risk. They would rather just not deal with it. And in the, in the, in the audience we're speaking with, of course, donors or prospective donors to help support these organizations, that's where the rubber hits the road. You, you want to transfer money to an NGO or you want to even maybe directly transfer resources to 
an on the ground local organization, if your bank or the banks involved in the transaction are nervous about it, they're simply not going to do it. And, and end of story, whether there's a license or not, that activity, that program is, is not going to happen. And it's a real challenge. Paul, thank you for, for pointing that out because the regulatory compliance and making sure that the money can go for the purpose in which it was given is is the lifeblood of everything that CAF America does. For impactful cross-border grant making, can you help us focus on how grant makers and philanthropists perhaps can help support future positive changes um, in this area so that perhaps maybe some of these pitfalls can be dealt with and allow even more money to support those in need? Yes, I, I would say two things. Um, one is, not, again, not to be too flip about it, but, um, you know, friends and family. And what do I mean by that? Um, donors are part of a, a community. Um, I imagine your listeners probably have colleagues, friends that also support um, different types of NGOs or humanitarian and peace building work. You are, you have, power in that network. And um, by power, I mean not only the power of shared information, shared experiences and resources, but power as a unified voice. Um, the donor community, whether it's institutional donors, corporate donors, or individual donors, have you know, um, influence and can, and can be a voice with financial institutions. Um, and in fact, even the regulators, the Treasury Department. I mean, we are we are a democracy. You're allowed to uh, contact the Treasury Department, learn, you know, and, and make connections with the Office of Foreign Assets Control. Um, we, we're all aiming toward the same thing. It's just unfortunate that the financial sector, because of its um, basic DNA, is is unfortunately the weak link. Not by any intention, just by simply what they're risk formula, what their mission is. And so I would say that um, using that influence, using that voice, uh, both with your own financial uh, contacts, the, the bank you do business with, um, there are some very excellent resources that the Treasury Department has available. There are resources that I'm sure CAF America, also individual NGOs have fact sheets that you can you know, engage your, your bank colleague in a conversation and say, this is what I am trying to do. And please understand it's legal. It's allowed. It's extremely safe because the NGOs themselves have rigorous and well-tested due diligence programs. It's more of a, uh, the challenge is really more of, you know, the power of persuasion and the power of education. And so that's, that's one thing. Um, the other thing that is a little more, in the weeds, if you will, but I, I would, I guess, invite some of your listeners who are interested. It's a bit more arcane, but there is interplay between the Treasury Department and these financial institutions. There's a, um, there was a very positive change that happened last year in, in a regulatory document called the Bank Examiner's Manual. And again, I apologize, I sound like a, like a professor, but this manual is, is sometimes called the Bible for bank compliance officers. This manual basically um, elucidates what they're required to do in their due diligence, you know, basically sets what they're allowed to do, what they're not allowed to do. The change in that manual basically, um, I think, endorsed and, and 
made very clear that the NGO sector is no more vulnerable than any other sector for abuse or terrorist hijacking, if you will. We had to fight for that over years. It, it sounds ridiculous, but, but we did. And so that change alone is, I think, notable. Um, so again, I think donors that, that have relationships with banks, maybe relationships with particular individuals at banks, if, if they're aware of this change, you know, that in itself, I think, is, is very uh, powerful you know, to say to your banker, well, you know, the guidance in the bank examiner's manual, can you imagine having that conversation with a banker? They would be impressed, first of all, and they would be, um, I think, probably educated. And that is the most, I think, challenging aspect of these new licenses is, is the cultural education and the factual education that needs to happen with the financial sector. It is absolutely critical that donors understand their power. Yeah. And, and Paul, thank you for that. I, I just want just another point uh, for our listeners who are trying to connect all dots here. You, you brought up sort of the, you know, the banking Bible and sort of some of the um, clarification there uh, is pointing out that NGOs are no more vulnerable, certainly, you know, do your due diligence, but they're not a sector in and of themselves that you need to shy away from. Uh, and you mentioned de-risking is a, is a big concern. That's akin to the, the FATF uh, recommendation eight qual- qualifications or re-explanation um, that came out where there's a chilling effect there as well uh, around the world where, you know, re- those are familiar um, with that uh, recommendation eight required that countries review their laws and, and regulations to ensure that nonprofits cannot be abused for uh, financing of terrorism, which by itself is great, although a lot of countries use that as a way to sort of suppress nonprofits and, and to, to make them sort of the enemies of the very work that they were trying to accomplish. That clarification that came out saying, no, you know, that's not what's meant there, this is not meant to, to suppress NGOs, is similar to what, what happened here with the, the Bank Bible. You're exactly right. I think your listeners probably are like, I just want to support good work, or I just want to help, you know, people in this country. But understanding this constellation and this sometimes Byzantine architecture of the world financial system as well as the U.S. Um, so as Ted mentioned, that this this entity called the FATF or the FATF is the Financial Access Task Force. And it's sometimes called the most powerful institution you've never heard of because Frankly, very few people have heard of this. This is a UN entity made up of several dozen countries, and they set the tone and, in some cases, the, the well, not quite the law, but basically the, as close as you can get to the law about guidelines for member states of the UN and how they should monitor, regulate, um, approach financial transactions. And this recommendation eight, as you said, Ted, is very analogous to what happened in the U.S. context. For years and years, um, the FATF had, when it was established, set out, I think it was 40 recommendations. And recommendation eight stood out to our community because it basically um, characterized NGOs as almost like Keystone cops. Um, You know, oh, they're vulnerable to risk and they can be easily infiltrated and abused for terrorist financing. There was no evidence of this, and there was very little um, cases where it actually happened. And in cases where it did happen, those rare cases where it did happen, it was completely false NGOs being set up. It wasn't legitimate NGOs being being fooled. And so 
I believe it was in 2016, that recommendation language has changed, as you said, to basically say they're no more vulnerable. Um, that was, what, six years ago. I think the other point for your listeners to understand is these contextual changes and dynamics are, are very slow to change. And this is where I think CAF America and the Charity and Security Network come in. This is what we do day in and day out. We participate in these conversations and these processes at the UN in the US and act as a voice for our community. And actually more than just our community as a voice for these populations that need our help. And so uh, I guess I would also urge your listeners, you know, please reach out to us, reach out to CAF. We know you're busy and, you know, we're not asking you to become experts, but if we can help you um, navigate these things, that's, that's what we are here for. Well, and I think, and there's a, there's a practical reason for, uh, for funders uh, working with CAF America and, and others to think about the role that they could play in, in that, because as you mentioned, we all want to do good. We want the money to go to where it is needed most. We want to be impactful with our giving. If you can't get the money there, then your money is not going to be impactful. So, Paul, in conclusion, um, you've commented a couple of times, and we're uh, mentioning here, the financial institutions can sometimes be overly cautious about risk and can impede the flow of grant money to where it is needed most. So can we talk a bit more in, in specificity about the role that the Charity and Security Network plays, and specifically in this regard, um, how we can you know, try to, I think, from your perspective, maybe educate and collectively help uh, financial institutions understand where the risk may or may not be. Sure, yes. And, and this, again, is a very uh, sort of inside the beltway, if you will, approach. But for better or worse, that's where these things happen. So one very specific example, over the past year, the Charity and Security Network was one of about six NGOs, nonprofit organizations, that participated in a multilateral dialogue. Um, it was supported by a uh, think tank in Washington called the Center for Strategic and International Studies. They have a very excellent humanitarian program. And so this, this dialogue took place, there were about four in-person sessions it included government entities, Treasury Department, State Department, um, OFAC, of course, and it included the financial sector, banking institutions, as well as um, a number of our colleague NGOs. This is the way sometimes um, policy you know, recommendations get formulated and then promoted and advocated for in Washington. It's not the first time this type of dialogue has happened. It's the most recent. And um, I, I mention all this because you know, policy and political stars often have to align. If, if this dialogue was taking place in a different administration or a different environment, it, it might be really, frankly, a waste of time. I think that the fact that it was taking place during the early year of the Biden administration that came into office with a foreign policy stance promoting humanitarian work is, is making it more valuable. So what does that mean for your listeners? Well, I would say, again, um, you know, educate yourself. The, the report of the dialogue is, is public. It's on the csis.org website. Uh, it might be more than just interesting reading, but it, you, there may be entry points for individual donors to enter. Um, you know, even I would say calling the OFAC office and introducing yourself. I mean, after all, these are government officials. These are civil servants, and they are there to both 
listen and educate and be resources for citizens and for donors. I think the other thing I would say is just to underscore and reiterate the fact that the donor community is a powerful, potentially powerful and influential voice. And coupled with your own personal relationships with your own institutions, you know, reach out, share your experience or seek to learn from others' experiences. I, I, I feel that if we were able to get one or two banks, particularly notable bank, you know, national banks that made the decision that, you know, this, this isn't really a risk and we would like to change our approach or policy. If, if we could, you know, when, it, when things are risky, nobody likes to go first, but everyone's fine going second. We haven't really identified a bank yet who, who, who is bold enough to go first. And I feel that the donor community may be able to help sort of break that ice, if you will. I, I'm being, you know, aspirational here. It may not be as practical for your listeners, but um, I, I just feel that that is the entry point for donors is is continuing to educate and encourage the financial sector. But first, understand that these activities are more than just legal; they're urgent. And secondly, that their risk calculus is way too sensitive that they don't manage risk, they avoid it. And that's, that's the key problem. And in this case, there, there are lives that can hang in the balance and the, the opportunity for these new general licenses that have been issued by the Office of Foreign Asset Control or OFAC um, opens up the possibility of making a bigger difference uh, to be aspirational, as you mentioned, for a better life uh, for many communities around the world and by partnering together. And that's what we're talking about here is uh, philanthropists, uh, grant makers, all coming together and working with, with uh, these offices to help banks understand how they can be part of this story of philanthropic support around the world. Unfortunately, Paul, that's all the time that we have here today, but I do want to make sure that our listeners know that we have additional resources available on our website, cafamerica.org. You can just click on the word podcast and you'll find a white paper that's been co-authored with the Charity and Security Network on navigating risk in sanctioned locations as international grant makers. Uh, We're proud to be able to support uh, global grant making. And Paul, I want to thank you again for being our guest here today on the Caring and Funding Podcast. You've been listening to the Caring and Funding Podcast, powered by Cap America. Tell all your friends and colleagues to check out our archives, sign up for our free newsletter, and download our iPad and iPod-friendly podcasts at capamerica.org. Thanks for listening to the Caring and Funding Podcast.